conversation topic? Well, actually, uh, the topic uh, is useful to introduce it mm. as soon as the student is capable of understanding it without getting unhappy or sad or whatever that they kind of accept things as they really are. Mm. Uh, so talking about uh, rebirth to, uh, let us say, your average low-class uh, Thai person uh, mm -hmm. out in the village, it would not be good. But walking down the street, your average person in Bangkok, that would be okay. In fact, I know of, st of stories like that of, the, of um, uh, Westerners who have gone to Thailand, they think, and gone to Bangkok instead. Hmm. walking down the street trying to do a survey, and they couldn't find anybody who uh, uh, all the Thais would not only dismiss the, uh, uh, that, there is, that there is no God, but they will dismiss it if it was a ridiculous question to ask. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, so that's the standard, let us say, intellectual or high-class way of Thai people thinking. Mm -hmm. The uh, average high-class person is quite capable of understanding the teachings of the Buddha, as is that the word rebirth means to be reborn in a state mm. that uh, we don't like to be in, or a woeful kind of state, but that, that it doesn't have anything to do with the kind of magic that would take a god that would uh, manufacture souls that lasted forever. Mm -hmm. Okay. That the, the whole issue in Buddhism over the word anatta has a whole lot of confusion built in it. That it would have been, in fact, much better for the original translators to have known a little bit more about the word Mm -hmm. so that they could have translated more correctly into the word no soul, anatta, rather than no self. Because mm, okay. self and the concept of a self or the concept of unity is um, built right into language. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the language itself, there were some people who would say, aha, the Buddha himself agrees that there is a self because he talks in words like me. <sighs> yeah, I've, I've read uh, a couple books and they go into self and stuff like that. I mean, it's something I'd very much like to experience and understand. Uh <laughs> Forgive my, my term here, but myself. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like the use of the word I, me, etc. They really pointed that out and uh, sort of like the connotations that it has. But they're, they're terms and words which are so integrated into language that it seems very, very, very difficult to try and talk to someone without using them. Right. And actually, so long as you understand and know what you're talking about, there is no reason to try to avoid those that language because we don't have a, uh, for instance, neuter mm. for first 
first person neuter. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no you substitute. Right, uh, like it. Mm. Okay, and and it and this are neutered kinds of words, and so referring to oneself as this would be more correct, but it, let us say, makes language sound confusing. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other way of doing it is to talk completely in passive terms <laughs> so that uh, there is no a first person referred to. Now, yeah. this is actually quite common in Thai language. I wonder if that were true or not, because uh, there are words mm -hmm. in Thai language for uh, me the man and me the girl, uh, and uh, we also have even particles at the end of sentences as if the women are supposed to say this word as a polite word, and men are supposed to say another word that's a polite word. And if you leave it off, you're intentionally not being polite, and that's something that the Westerners don't understand. Right, about that right. Okay. But most of it is, is that the pronouns are just left out completely, and people expect to get it out of context. Mm. Like uh, Pai Tiao can, uh, means to go play, literally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, pai is to go, uh, um, and so Pai Tiao uh, uh, could be seen in the sense of asking a question, are you going out? Or right, okay. statement, I'm going out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or it could be a statement depending upon the situation that we're all preparing and already know. And so Pai Tiao is a statement, you should go. In other words, Pai Tiao means I'm ready to go, let's go, we're going to do that together. And it's all the same language, you see. Hmm. In English, we tend to make that distinction. We tend yeah. to bring the person into it rather than leaving the person in context. Hmm. All right. So, uh, knowing that, and knowing also that uh, Pali was like that, it's an Indo-European language, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. uh, Thai is a, a, a tonal language that has no case, no gender much, um, uh, no uh, tense, mm. okay? that the tense is actually in, uh, expected as understood, or if you have to say it, you have to say it in, in, uh, using a, another word or a particle word. Right. So okay. people understand the tenses based on the, uh, the situation or the, the, the subject of a conversation. They're able to infer the tense. Exactly. So right. you could also have a, a word to make sure of it, but the word also has other values. Mm. Uh, an example of that is the word in English already, because this is the word that means exactly that. You could also go so far as use the word even, like even Stephen. Okay. Mm. Uh, uh, so we could say it like this in simple English without putting in the, uh, uh, the tenses. Uh, uh, go to town already. And mm -hmm. that infers that I have already gone to town. 
Okay? Yeah. So in that regard, it says Paitialao, uh, 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 mm. which now would put it in past tense, but you still have to figure out who it was and when and where and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but all, but it also can have that other kind of context in it. You could say Paitialao would mean let's go already. Mm, mm. <laughs> and so in yeah. In, put past participles in it, or not past participles, but past tense sounding kinds of words still doesn't mean that, but it all has, to, the Thai language is con, is somewhat of a contextual language. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think it's kind of the same with some instances in Japanese as well. Uh, like at the moment, I'm an online English tutor. So I talked to lots of people from Japan and Korea and a few from Thailand as well. And I think it's the same in Japan. Like, people will just end up missing out entire words or phrases and they just substitute in one word to mean a whole sentence. But because of the context, because of the situation, people understand what they're, what they're meant. What, what, what's because being that's, said. that's built in as part of the language that is often not built into English because in English we're supposed to get that stuff defined. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in some cases, uh, it takes very few words in Thai language to say what you could say in English. It takes a whole lot of words. Mm. But there are other contexts when you've got to actually spell out exactly what's going in Thai language. It'll take them this many words <laughs> <laughs> to say what in English could have been said in this many words, but in simple Thai could have been in just a couple of words. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay. And in th those cases would be like in legal documents or perhaps in newspapers and places in public print. Mm. But in yeah, conversations, yeah. everything is expected to be uh, in context. So let's now go back to the whole point because this whole point is is that let's not try to avoid pronouns in English as mm -hmm. sort of a teaching tool of I'm supposed to be an author because in fact I practiced that for many many years. Oh really? Was right. it difficult? It sounds very difficult. <laughs> um, there is when growing up a game that was played at uh, baby showers. Mm -hmm. And that is, is that uh, the game that's played, that's a long-term game during the whole time, is, is that no attendant at, at shower can use the word baby. <sighs> okay. All right. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, Which so means you, you, there's going to be a whole lot of hilarity because some of them just don't have the mind to avoid the words while a whole bunch of other people are sitting there listening to you, waiting for you to say the word when you do it. <laughs> okay. And, and so, um, it's, it's a very interesting kind of thing, but it also, you can see that it is spiritual in a way of becoming mindful of yeah. one's speech. Mm, mm, mm. All right. So becoming mindful of speech means that we would, and I use the word we here as a substitution to step away from <laughs> anything closer. 
so that that would be a way of start to speak is start using uh, the royal we. Mm. Doctors use it because the doctors know that what they're saying is often a prescription or a medical diagnosis or something that has the entire medical profession backed up. Mm, this mm. doctor is not, this is my, as a personal, I did it all myself. I went to graduate school. I got my medical degree. I practiced medicine at the hospital. And now I'm the doctor who gives you this. Mm. That whole context is missing there. No, it's a we in the sense of I'm representing the entire medical profession. And I invite you to go get a second opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get right. yeah. So, uh, uh, bring, this is also a way of thinking of it in the sense of the Dhamma. That hmm. teaching the Dhamma, people will often say, you've got some really good ideas there. And that will be a, a reminder of, this is not mine. This is Dhamma. Mm, mm, this mm. is a pot of gold I found in the woods, and I'm not sure who owns it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so uh, let's get back to why would we even bother to practice and do stuff like that? Mm. What's this whole thing about? Mm. Well, first off, let's look at the word anatta. Uh, an, atta. An means not. Atta. The word atta is also in the word of Mahatma, atta, Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi, which yes, actually Gandhi. then does translate correctly as great soul. Mm. Okay. Now, what we really, <clears throat> the confusion was, and I got within this, in fact, I've got a really good friend, uh, Tun, who is Estonian that actually lives uh, close to Watso and Mok at Dom PM. And he pointed this out to me, and I really am grateful to some of my old Dhamma friends because uh, uh, Dhamma B2 has pointed some stuff out like this with language. We've got some people who really know what's going on around here. Mm. So this Greek word uh, for ata, they thought was the word for atom or atom. And we, uh, but the real Greek is, is that the whole idea of Pythagoras and atom and all of that was fairly recent Greek in the sense that it, it, it was approximately the time of the Buddha. It wasn't part of the original Indo-European language. Mm -hmm. But there is another word that is. So listen carefully. A-T-O-M, A-T-M-O. Atmo. 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 Right. That's the word for ata. Atmo and ata are the words that connect together, not the word atom, which actually means not breakable or not splittable. Mm. Okay. Ata means not cut. All right. But yeah. the word atmos gives us our language for atmosphere. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, now we're beginning to think about the atmosphere is what we breathe. It is the breath of life. If you do not take in atmosphere every minute or so, you're going to die. Yeah, you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> you're not going to have a good time if you don't have some atmosphere. 
Yeah. Okay. The point of it is, is that yes, it is actually can be considered in that religious kind of old school way of thinking is, is it is life giving itself. Therefore, it must be life itself. Yeah. 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 I see that. Okay. Which means that this life force that is there in the atmos is not mine inside of me. Hmm. So that's one of the ways of looking at it. Now, the Vedantas and others will say that the that the uh, the greater whole, or the universe, be, being one with all, or being come one with everything. You know the jokes and all of that. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. Stuff. Okay. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. think about it. In the old days, it was this atmosphere. It's this suit that we live in, mm-hmm. and it's everywhere. It is. It is literally everywhere. <laughs> sometimes it's foul, but it's still air. Yes, sometimes it's very, very foul. <laughs> but it's still, yeah, like you say, it's still well, almost air. Almost always still the reason that it is foul is because something's been hot, something's been burning. But mm-hmm. The effect of, for the air is, is that, it's, uh, that when something is on fire, burning with desire, Smoke gets in your eyes. <laughs> it it pollutes the atmosphere. We can't see. We can't breathe. Anything mm. like that. It's on fire. Hence, that's why uh, Tenesero would make phrases like um, uh, "mind like fire unbound" or uh, "practice dhamma as if your hair was on fire." As if your hair was on fire. Haven't you ever heard of that? No, Look, never. Siddhama, practice on Upanasati as if your hair was on fire. You'd better, I mean, look what could happen. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like my hair, so, uh, yeah, I think I will take that advice to heart. <laughs> okay, so... That's kind of a joke, but it's pointing in that direction that life force is Mm -hmm. also cleansing Mm -hmm. in the sense that it takes the dirt out of the things that have been on fire. Mm -hmm. A fresh Mm -hmm. breeze, Mm -hmm. cool wind, air. This is so important that it's built in like that. Uh, with that connection to, guess what, Anapanasati. Sati. Indeed, isn't that interesting how all of this stuff ties back together again? (laughs) Yeah, it's all tied together with a lovely little bow on top. (laughs) Bows are optional. (laughs) 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 Okay, so um, the Atmos... Or the self, the Buddha says, no, you're not the atmos. You are not the life itself. You're just here to observe. And the other part about it is, is that that means that you're not permanent because um, the Brahmins, mm-hmm. and this started according to uh, Dhamma Vitu, it started at about 800 BC when the things got really, really tough with the Brahmins and the, uh, the Aryans were strong enough uh, to start taking back the land. Mm-hmm. And the Brahmins used to control it all. Before the Aryans came, uh, there was only two clans or two castes, and that was the Brahmin class and the Sudras. 
the ones who then at that time in the beginning owned the land and were farmers and all of that but after enough funerals mm. after enough funerals the Brahmins began to pick up more and more of the land mm. and then when the Aryan races came in from Mesopotamia or who knows where uh, and whether or not they brought the Indo-European language or whether it was already Indian that's now a new controversy but <clears throat> When uh, the Buddhist clan, the Aryans, came, uh, they brought with them um, a whole mer merchant, like an army. When an army travels, it doesn't just have army. Mm. At least a half, if not two-thirds of the people in that traveling trove are support people that are not actually dressed in the military. They're the ones who make the uniforms. They're the ones who make the tools. They're the ones who uh, do the gathering up of the food and uh, cooking. And uh, they're the wagoneers, and they take care of the horses. And you wouldn't believe how many there are people like that. Yeah, the, uh, they say that the uh, army uh, travels on its stomach. And this, this is what they're, they're talking about, that there is all of this baggage that has to go along with an army. Okay. Hmm. So when they came, now you've got the army, the support for the army, you've got the Brahmins and the Sudras. Now in India, you have four classes of people, four castes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, the, uh, uh, the army baggage years became the merchant class. And the military still became and stayed the rulers and the aristocratics. You still had the original priests, the Brahmins, and then you had the Sudras that were talking about having the bad best end of it. <laughs> they had the worst of it when the Brahmins had it all. <laughs> and now they've got even more. So this is the caste system. This was when Brahmins started saying that, oh, we are special and we are Brahmins. Mm -hmm. Not because we're military, but because we're priests. And we are priests because we were born priests. We run the religion here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you don't. Right. And now they come up with the, the perspective of, and the reason why that's true, that you were not born a Brahmin, is because you were not good in your past. And the reason that I was born Brahmin is because I was good in the past and guess what Boy. there is that I and there is reincarnation born as a mm. political maneuver political man uh, politics uh. <laughs> yes so the whole quality of rebirth and reincarnation was a political maneuver in the first place but it was an old political maneuver mm-hmm uh, for instance, payrolls. That, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Same thing, right. I, I am so important, I'm a god, and I'm going to be born and resurrected. Therefore, you have to go build me a pyramid. Yeah, yeah. The pharaoh is just a reincarnation, and, you know, they've got a... All right, at least they've they got an afterlife. Nobody else does, you see. That's the place where things are really strange. yeah. Yeah, only those because important noble people have the possibility of chilling with the gods in the afterlife. 
Right, but listen to that Brahmin story. When that Brahmin story gets picked up by Alexander and his crowd, when they come marching through, mm-hmm. the Greeks, when they come through. But in fact, one of the points that I'm still trying to figure out is, is that because of the time frame and because of the expansion of the empire, it actually looks like that Alexander the Great did actually go to battle with King Asok. Okay. Asok run and chased Alexander back out of India. So he went up into Afghanistan because he couldn't do such. But they, but meanwhile, he was in uh, India long enough to introduce statuary into Buddhism. Okay, okay. Because there was absolutely no statuary uh, from that time. But in the time of Asok, statuary started to appear in Greek form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So the standing Buddhas that you will find all over uh, Bodh Gaya and mostly uh, the Deer Park is Tanya. All of those really old statues that they've dug up from that time mm-hmm. are very Greek in their presentation. Mm-hmm. Very similar to the sort of architecture, the style. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. So. This is also the time when in Egypt something very remarkable started to happen. And mm-hmm. that is anybody who had any money at all started beginning a money fight. Back at the really old days, only the kings were mummified. Mm. Only the aristocracy, only the really, really top class. Now, yeah. any merchant, anybody's got any money, they want to be mummified, and that started during the Ptolemy uh, time. I wonder where they changed it from... Only a king can get reborn if he does enough, um, what do they call it, rituals over him, mm-hmm. is to, oh, why don't we hire the same uh, uh, priest to pray over us and we'll give him all our land so that grandpa can be reborn. Mm-hmm. And so this is where all of that kind of stuff gets started, and it got started back in India. Mm-hmm. But you can think of it that being reborn, so now Christianity comes by with, again, everybody's going to be reborn. All you now have to do is become a Christian, and thou shalt be saved. Okay, so yeah. now that's the easy way out, but it's still the same story, and that story has to do with everyone has a, an internal mechanism that is called an instinct, the survival instinct. Yes. Okay. If that survival instinct is strong, then the thought with that survival instinct is, I want to live forever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that whole idea of being reborn is delicious. It is, yeah. It almost feels like I get a second chance. Mm. Not only that, but the promise is, if I'm a good boy, I'll get a really good reward, and if I'm a bad boy, I'm going to get punished. Yeah, 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 yeah. This idea of heavens and hells, guess where they came from? They don't come from from uh, Judaism, but they were already pre-existing in India. So where do you think concepts of heaven and I mean, even the river Styx and Hades was mm. still a land of the dead. It wasn't a land of punishment until the Ptolemy period. Mm-hmm which was after Alexander the Great died, you know, the Ptolemy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm not... <laughs> Maybe... Okay, so we're talking about 300 B.C. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe 250 BC, uh, uh, 150 BC. That period of time is when these mm-hmm. um, uh, strange things started to happen in Europe or in the Mesopotamian area, due to the fact that uh, Alexander the Great had been in India. Mm-hmm. But going back to the point about it is is that this is the issue of the self. And this yes. is the teaching of the Buddha is, is that there is no soul that is permanent, everlasting, and strong enough to make you a Brahmin in the next life if you've been a goody two-shoes this life. <laughs> goody two-shoes. <laughs> yeah. So in that regard, the original translation should have been no soul. No soul. Mm. No soul. Now, um, a lot of people will try to get around the, the soul as to whether it's something that's physical or whether it's not physical. Okay. But we already know enough from Einstein and uh, uh, modern physics that if it's not physical, then it's energetic. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But energetics don't have... Um, how to say it. Energetics is movement. When things heat up, the molecules start running around each other faster. Oh yeah, they get very speedy. Very speedy. Okay, they get speedy. Okay, so this is the whole quality then of energy has to do with motions and speed. Yeah. And time and things like that. And what is it that's moving? And this kind of thing. Which means that in that regard, if it's energetic, there's no possibility of a soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. An example of that right down to the electron level, that if you put a, uh, an electric charge on this end and you take it out on this end, okay, was it the electron that went into this end of the wire, that, the same electron that came out of that end of the wire? No. How do you know? It could have been another electron along the way. It could have been, but mm. how do... See, the point I'm making is is that uh, electrons are indeterminate. Yes. Each yeah, yeah, yeah. Each have four characteristics, and this is an old issue in uh, uh, particle physics. Mm. This is an unsolvable question for that reason. Yeah, electrons are weird. They both exist and they don't exist, and they choose when they want to exist. And well, let me it... ask you this: Is does a whirlwind exist? Does a whirlwind exist? Does a whirlwind exist? Yes. Okay, but then uh, nothing much changes when the whirlwind doesn't exist. Very true. Yes. Okay. All right. So the whirlwind, and unless it's picking up particles, but now yes. it's to the level of the whirlwind at the electron level is nothing but a little tiny whirlwind of space mm, and time. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's yeah, no yeah. particles there. Therefore, they have very few characteristics. There's only four characteristics to an electron. Therefore, you cannot tell. Mm. The same conundrum exists in the sense of does light travel in one direction and then travel back in the same direction at mm. the same speed? Mm, mm. And that is also another conundrum that we can't answer because we cannot measure the light going from here to there. 
We just can't. Yeah. Even if we had two different uh, um, high-speed clocks. Mm. The clocks were together when they were here, but if you move this clock over here, they're going to have slightly different time differences. Yeah. Therefore, you cannot use a clock. No, you can't. The only thing that you can do is use a mirror so that you can mm -hmm. put it in here, have it bounce back, and now you can get it, right? But how do you know that it was the same? You can't just divide it in half because we don't know that yet, okay? This is the kind of stuff that makes this very, very interesting mm -hmm. in the sense that um, the Buddha comes now to the five aggregates. The five aggregates are extremely important. There are probably 15 or 20 references in, to them in the Majjhima Nikaya, including the fact that they're in the Anapanasati Sutta and they're in the Satipatthana Sutta, and it is a major characteristic of the practice of Mahasi. Well, they sound very important then. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. Well, the actual teachings is not the constituent components of who you are. That in mm -hmm. fact, you could say that whoever you are, the personality has these five components. Right. Okay. And most people confuse that they think that they are these components. Okay. What are these components? The body, the feeling, consciousness, and the sense of being able to know something. Mm-hmm. And uh, the... The next one is um, perception, the ability to process, the ability to think. This is who I am because I think this way. This is the process of thinking that I do. And then the last one on the list is the Sankara or all of my past memories. Who I am is my past. Past. Mm, yes. Who I am is my past. Who I am is the way that I think. Who I am is what I can see and observe plus my feelings, and the body. Now, the most basic mistake is just to consider that I am the body because that's the slowest moving object. Mm. Because it's slow moving, it's easy for the fool to become identified with the, with the body. I am this body. And look how many big business industries are associated with that belief. The clothing mm. industry. Yeah, the makeup yeah, yeah, yeah. The mm -hmm. hair cutters, the, the workout rooms, mm. the way mm. Yeah. The hospitals and the doctors, too. That's true. They deal with people and bodies every single day throughout their entire careers. I am my body. And mm. if my body has a problem, I have, can't fix it myself. I need a doctor. Mm. Or I have a body and my body is not beautiful enough. Let me go to Max Factor. Or, or let me go to the gym or to the weight yeah, room. Let let's let's sort bed. it out. Let's sort it out. Let's look good. Yes. Let's tone up. Right. I, right. I, I am unhappy with my body. Therefore, mm. I've got to go work on my body because I don't like me in this body. Hmm. Okay, but Jesus even says you can't change your uh, your height even an inch. Yep, very true. You can't do that. You cannot make yourself 10 years old this week and 65 next week. You have <laughs> very little control over the body. 
Mm. Therefore, if anything, the body is a house that we live in and not the me itself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next quality then that we have to deal with is I am not my feelings because everybody, in fact, is generally uh, driven by their feelings. Like I feel sad today or I feel angry. Okay. What they're mm. actually recognizing there is, is that it's not that they own the feelings, but rather that the feelings own them. Just oh, like yeah. the body owns me. Or the house. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've ever bought and owned a house with a mortgage and all of that, you begin to get the feeling that, hey, wait a minute, I thought I was a homeowner, and really the home is an owner of me. <laughs> that when its toilet breaks, I'm responsible for fixing that toilet. When yeah. that light goes out, it's my job to go fix it. Therefore, I am nothing but a fix-it man for this house, and it runs my life. That's a very good point. A very good point. <laughs> well, people do that with their bodies, too. I mean, look how mm. much shopping they do to try to keep the body up. When the body's going to fall apart, whether they try to keep it up or not. Yeah, it doesn't matter how long it will take. It will fall apart eventually. It will, it will fall apart eventually. That's exactly right. And if you live your life happily, it might not fall apart so fast. If you keep beating on it, whipping on it, racing it around, then you know, taking it to the gym, putting too expensive, fancy clothes on it, keep taking it to a doctor who keeps plugging it up with stuff. It might fall apart even quicker. It might. It just might. So if you just leave the darn thing alone, it might, in fact, be okay. <laughs> mm. And it's a nice house to live in if we stop messing with it. Yeah. But yeah. But the feelings, the feelings mm. are the, what we think that is my feelings. Mm. Where in fact, no, the feelings are even more of a boss. That if you have yeah. anxiety, instead of absolutely dealing directly with that anxiety, we go try to please it. Oh, the reason I feel anxious is because I don't have this, that, or the other thing. If I go get this, that, or the other thing, then the anxiety will subside. Mm. Mm. Actually, while we're actually grasping and clinging and getting that object, we may not be aware of the anxiety, but as soon as we get it, the anxiety will come back. Uh, the story is, is that the old man was living in a hovel many centuries ago, mm -hmm. and he's laying in his hovel, um, and um, he has anxiety, and he knows it. He can feel that anxiety, so he starts to think, what, 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 and it can, ah, it's that fence. And so he gets up, he goes out, and he starts repairing the fences. He gets the stones there to make sure that the wolves can't get in and the goats can't get out, mm -hmm. and after or three hours in the middle of the night, he comes back down and he lays back in the bed, and guess what? Anxiety comes back again. It's, yeah, it comes back. He comes back. So it wasn't the build, it wasn't the wall that he needed to build. That was just a temporary relief from the anxiety. He's not dealing <clears throat> directly with the anxiety. Okay. The only way that we can deal with the anxiety directly is by separating ourselves from it. I am not the anxiety. 
This is not me that's anxious. It's just anxiousness that can be seen. Mm. It's almost like it like this. I am the anxiety. This is the anxiety, and I'm clinging to it strongly. So therefore, yeah. I am being led everywhere that anxiety goes. There I go with it, okay? <laughs> Until we wake up. Aha, I see you, anxiety. And now the separation occurs, and you are no longer the anxiety, and the anxiety is no longer you. You're just an observer of an anxious of feeling. A, a, an anxious feeling. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how we are to deal with the five aggregates, is to separate ourselves from them so that we recognize for sure that it is just a feeling. Mm, mm. It's not my feeling. It's just a body, not my body. Mm. It's just perception. It is not my perception. That, in fact, perception is almost always based upon the sankara of the past. You've probably heard garbage in, garbage out. That happens in the human mind moment by moment. Mm -hmm. We take the past to try to make sense out of the present moment. And sometimes we're right, and sometimes we're not. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. So our past is what we remember, but either we don't process it well enough or that it's got holes in it. And there's all kinds of possibilities for holes in our memories. For instance, we may have not been able to observe what happens. That's an example of that is, is that in the United States, there's a trial going on uh, for the killer of uh, George Floyd. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, and what the uh, prosecutors have done is they have put every witness <clears throat> that they could find on the stand. Mm -hmm. One witness is not going to be good enough, and everybody knows it. Why? Because no one's memory is going to be good enough. They want everybody's opinion, right? Mm. Okay, so, so any holes that, that they have can be filled well, by exactly. each individual so people. Each individual witness then to that event only saw part of the story. Yeah. Which means that any time that you're at any kind of event in your own life, you're only seeing part of the story. You never get the full story. Very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our perception, then, is going to be always polluted by bad input to the memory system. Not only that, but memories get layered so that more, more recent memories for some people are more likely to be used and old memories for others. But they're still layered in there. And okay. so within the teaching of the Buddha, it's better to not disturb those layers so that we can always use the most recent ones because by the time we're getting into the Dhamma, most of our memories are going to now be wholesome, and the really old, unwholesome stuff is going to be buried at the bottom, and we don't want to disturb that. We don't want no unwholesome stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> so we're going to keep our memories short. Mm. Okay, so uh, when, when our memories are actually there, there's also the issue that when they come out, there, it may be the wrong memory that comes up. It may be the wrong stuff. It may mm. be uh, uh, that I remembered it wrongly in the first place, and therefore I chose this to be the stuff I'm processing the current moment with when I should have been processing it otherwise. Okay. Mm. So now we're beginning to see that, wait a minute, we've got problems with, with memory. 
it's bad in the beginning, it's bad in the middle while it's in there, and it's bad in the end when it comes back out. It's mm. better not to trust memory systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can get it's polluted. Better. It can get polluted along the way, altered slightly. Uh, during the situation that you're remembering, you know, something might have distracted you, so you remember it incorrectly, and your brain tries to guess what happened and it could fill it in incorrectly so there's a lot of room for a lot of errors exactly and if we know that then the right answer to that question is let's keep looking in the present moment instead of relying upon old conclusions <clears throat> then in fact we can see how those old conclusions have uh let us say slowed down science over mm. the centuries, but that now the most modern generation is beginning to not rely upon the conclusions of uh, their professors in universities anymore. That in fact, even the professors are not even relying upon their old professors anymore. For <laughs> so let me give you a really uh, clear example. <laughs> the steam engine. Mm-hmm. Watts. England. Do you know what that first steam engine was used for? Uh, I do not know. It was used to pump water out of a coal mine. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, end of story. We don't need any more. I've just mentioned the two things, water <laughs> and coal. <laughs> what do you need for a steam engine to operate? Yeah, you need, you need fuel. You need coal. You need... Uh... Oh, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Steam engine, right. Steam engine. <laughs> exactly. It took them a hundred years to take the steam engine out of the coal mine. It never occurred to them that they could put a steam engine outside the factory, bring the coal and bring the water in and have that steam engine then run all of these belts that we could build mm. an industrial revolution on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, from the 1600s to the 1700s, we at least moved that steam engine out of the coal mine <laughs> next to the factory. Guess mm. what? It took them another hundred years to put wheels on the steam engine for a locomotive. <laughs> 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 took them quite a while. Uh-huh. But you can see what uh, has happened in the past hundred years. Now things are beginning to pick up. But it oh, took yeah. them two generations of 200 years of gener uh, uh, to go from one to the, to the second generation to the third generation. took them 200 years to get there from the uh, 1600s to the 1800s. But once mm. we started laying track, that's when things began to innovate at a much higher speed. If you can think about that steam engine, do you know when the transistor was invented? I do not. No, no. It was, it was it was actually under develop in the 1950s, but they did not come commercially available in any quantities at all until early 1960s. But by 1967, they were in computers. One innovation, and then it takes off, and then all of a sudden, and, everything and else now, just... everybody instead of one computer with transistors at some university in 1963... The IBM is actually manufacturing and putting them in universities in 1970. Mm. And now, only 50 years, everybody's got one on their, in their hand, literally. In their hand, I yeah. 
I, I would, let's see, we probably have 20 working computers here at the house. Really? Yeah, because everybody's got a cell phone. True, true. Yeah, yeah, and that's... Guess the, what? The, I've got, I've got uh, servers. Servers run Linux. Oh, Linux, and yeah, I've yeah. I've got seven of them. So I've got a <laughs> server that's only the size of a hard drive. But it doesn't mm. have a, a USB. It's got a, um, a RJ45 jack to plug into the internet, mm. and so it, it takes a lot of uh, processing skill. Okay, this is how ubiquitous they are. They're getting to the point that even refrigerators are going to have them. Even blenders are going to have them. Everything's going to have them. Everything that's got electrical happen. Even the new TV that we've got hooks to the internet. And you can yeah. sit there with the thing, and I can see I can see what kind of processor they've got because when it's reading a disk, uh, you can plug a um, uh, a flash drive in it, and if it's got three or four movies, they'll show up. If it's got ten, it'll take a minute. If you've got a thousand videos on there, it'll never show you your collection. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a processor. So this is the innovation. Let's get back to the point of then. That's another reason to stay in the present moment. We don't need to go back into, for instance, audio files, because that was the big thing back in the 1960s was tape. When's the mm. last time you ever saw any tape? <laughs> and see, Lord, Lord knows. But, but uh, tape ran at 15 inches a second when it was tape. In the 1940s, they had wire. Mm. But getting it down to one and seven eighths inches a second on a cassette with four tracks so that you could take the cassette and turn it backwards. Mm. That didn't take so long. But now, who, where's the cassette? Are they even manufactured uh, anywhere anymore? <laughs> How about DVDs? They're old news. because Yeah, DVD, DVDs everything. are old now. <laughs> okay. So this is another reason for us to recognize that things are moving pretty fast. We don't need to delve in the past. Mm. So another part of it then is to understand this Sankara may have had some skills that were developed, some useful things that you can use in the moments because some students mis misunderstand this, this thing called Sankara. Um, that we could say that, yeah, there's more than one kind of Sankara. And that um, an example of that would be muscle memory. Muscle memory. Mm. Okay, that's a, sign, that's, that's a kind of stored thing so that uh, a baseball player is more likely going to be able to catch a banana flying by him than a Thai man who has, uh, whose uh, culture is against throwing objects. It's an absolute no-no to throw an object here in Thailand. Oh, okay. But, but if you lived in a baseball culture, then having somebody throw an apple in your direction is not going to make you outraged or, or afraid. You're just going to You're just it. going to catch it. Catch yeah. it. No problems. So that's an issue then of muscle memory and that we have a lot of skills built up over time. That mm -hmm. is both muscle memory as well as um, uh, conceptualizations. The ability to think, okay, actually improves. You can develop skills. An example of that is Sudoku. A beginner 
you can give him a, an easy puzzle and it'll take him 15 or 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, but, but someone who had been playing a lot of Sudoku, they can play a really, really hard game in that same period of time. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, and in fact, a really easy game can be down to beginning to see how the mind works because you can see that we don't own Sudoku. You don't think in words. Yeah, that's true. Think, that's true. You think in spatial objects. You think visually so that uh, by the time that you can actually push the four, you already know where the next two are going to go. Your hands are actually slower than the mind figuring out where those numbers are going on an easy post when you know what to look for, when you develop the mind that way. Okay, so this also is a Sankara, but it's not the kind of Sankara that is painful. Okay, it's also um, memory systems in the sense of uh, historians. They can remember all, a lot of stuff that they that we wrote. Okay, so the Buddha actually, uh, it's actually Sariputta who talks about it, and I'm quoting now Sutta number nine, which is actually the name of it is Right View, Samaditti, and in there. He discusses Sankara as this bodily kind and the verbal kind that we were just discussing. And then the, the next one is the Chitta, which is more the emotional Sankara. This is the one that's the painful one, because this is where we store all our painful memories. We feel bad because we remember how to feel bad. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And we learned how to feel bad from our parents, as well as we knew instinctually how to feel bad. Mm. Okay, so now look at all this mountain of bad feeling material that we've got to sift through sometimes in order to uh, bring ourselves up to this present moment, when in fact it would be better if we don't. Mm. It would be better, in fact, if we uh, gain some new skills with some new ones. This is why I, I discuss it in the sense of uh, you have been talking yourself into feeling bad all of these years. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Okay. So this is where the Buddha comes in with all of these unwholesome thoughts. And the more we dis discover them, the more we recognize that these thoughts and concepts are only unwholesome because we can see that they're unwholesome and if we cannot see that they're unwholesome then we will continue to operate in whatever way they really are and so part of the investigation uh, even in the Mahasi noting system part of the investigation is to investigate these five aggregates especially things that come up from the past, the thoughts that we have from the past and the feelings from the past, to mm -hmm. recognize 100% that's not me. Mm -hmm. I'm not what I was in the past. Because if I think that I was something in the past and I remember something that I did that was really, really stupid, I'm going to feel really, really stupid and remorseful and all of that kind of stuff. Because it's me that did it in the past. Mm -hmm. But if I can come to that separation and understand that, wait a minute, whoever I was in the past that did that only saw things in his own way. 
But mm. because I do not approve of that now, that means that I am already not the person who thought that that was a good thing to do at the time. Mm. Mm. Okay, and so we separate ourselves from our past. We separate ourselves from that old sand car. And, I, and we recognize that I am not what I have been thinking I've been all this time. Because almost all the definitions that we have about who I am or who you are have to come with things you've done in the past. Yeah. Okay. And that's especially true if someone holds a job for a number of years. And so the question is, who are you? The answer is, I'm a plumber or I'm a, uh, an electrician or I'm a professor or I'm a some job that I've been doing a long time. Yeah. Or I'm a student or whatever, because we see that the way that we occupy our time defines who we are. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then maybe I should go around saying, well, I am a happy one. (laughs) (laughs) I spend all my time just practicing and performing happiness. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many people who would like to be labeled as a happy one, so... (laughs) Well, another way of saying a happy one would be the fortunate one, because a happy person is generally seen as fortunate, okay? Yeah. And also worthy of respect. Mm. Mm. I have just walked you into the definition of Arahat. Because that's what the word means, one who is worthy of respect, one who is fortunate. In fact, the one who is fortunate, the Pali word for that is Bhagava, which is the Bhagavad. word that was used for the Buddha a lot. Ah. And also, it's used commonly in India. An example of that would be, have you ever heard of Osho? I have, yeah. Bhag- Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh, Bhagwan. There's that word. And that in uh, magical terms, it's translated as a god. But in reality, it just means someone who's really lucky, really fortunate, really happy mm. about his circumstances. That's all it means. <laughs> so this is the way then we begin to recognize that the way that I think and actually that part of us who can see the knower, the observer. Mm-hmm. The, the, when you're doing the Mahasi method of noting, what is it that notes? Uh, this is the consciousness, and, you're, yeah. and you two are not that. Mm. Vinya is just there. That when we put the Vinya, the noting, the knowing, the observational quality, along with the body, the feelings, our ability to figure things out and perceive and perceptions, along with all of our database, those five things put together make up a person's personality. Mm. Guess what? You are not your personality. (laughs) All of these things which make up that one thing, and you're not even that. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're not in any of those things, then you could not be the whole show. Mm. This is where we come into um, King Melanda and uh, Nagasena, the monk that uh, comes out of, I think, the first century B.C. that Mm -hmm. gave rise to the Mahayana and that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has been compared in print. 
in both English and Thai to Nagarjuna. So Nagarjuna was King Melinda and they were talking about this very thing and Nagarjuna says, with your permission, O King, I would like to uh, take your chariot and manipulate it and we'll, and we'll put it back together in a few minutes. And so he had the guys take the basket off, take mm-hmm. the wheels off, take this, uh, uh, you know, the, there's this thing called a spine uh, that when you have two horses, you have them with a, a thing between them. Uh, yes. Stage coaches didn't have it, but chariots did. Yeah, yeah, It's also called a tongue. So you take the tongue down, that long pole, you take the axles, you take the basket, you straddle them around. Oh, King, where is the chariot? Mm. And he looks over there. No, those are just wheels. No, that's just a basket. <laughs> no, that's just a tongue. No, that's just harnessing. Mm. You have to put all of it together. And then it becomes a chariot. Yeah. Okay. And so this actually, Nargajuna had just stumbled upon basic uh, high-class um let us call it general systems theory. Have you ever heard of general systems theory? I've heard of it, but I don't okay. know anything of it. There are several things about it that make it quite interesting. And that is mm-hmm. the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Why? Because the chariot parts laying around separated from each other is not a chariot. It's only when they collect together into a system, in a unified collective system where everything fits together correctly. Mm. Now, what you have is something new. Out of those parts, you have transportation. The same thing would Mm. be an automobile. You can take your automobile and take all the parts all over the yard, you know. All the bolts are in a box over there, and all the bumper parts are over there, and the wheels are there, and the tires are over there, and all of that kind of stuff, right? No transportation. You have to put all that stuff back together, but you can't just pile it into a pile and say it's together. It's got to be constructed or unified correctly. It's got to unified be put together correctly. in its right stage. And when that happens, it becomes a system, not just a pile of junk. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the system then becomes greater than the sum of all the parts in that system. And that's who you are. Mm, yeah. So you're right, really not there. It's like, uh, where is the transportation when you point to the car? Mm. But we yeah. all know that the whole point of the car is transportation. Yeah. You cannot see the transportation itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So if we understand the self to be like that, this is um, a very, very good introduction that we'll do next time Mm -hmm. into the teaching of Paticca Samuppada, which is how this self is constructed out of these five aggregates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, it's very interesting stuff. Very, very interesting. And I know the just through reading that you know the uh, the identification of the self and whatnot is a root cause for an awful lot of suffering. <laughs> so well, let us say this: mm. we can actually short circuit the whole thing 
And we'll pick up with the five aggregates next time and how they fit into Petitra Samapada. But we can boil it down to this one point, and that mm -hmm. is instead of looking at it as the word self and all of the sophisticated ramifications with it, or even dissecting and using Freudian language is wrong, which we'll do next time. Mm -hmm. We can boil it down to one word that everybody, even a child, understands one word, and that is selfishness. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Selfishness comes from being selfish, which mm -hmm. means to take on the qualities of being a self. Mm. And when we're not selfish, that means we share, we can be friends, we can be uh, um, communal, we can get along, uh, we can be friends, all of that kind of stuff works. Yeah. But when we're selfish, we tend to get angry, frustrated, uptight, Self-centered and rude, potentially. Mm -hmm. mm. And so there it is. That's the dukkha. So, in fact, we could say that not only when a self is being uh, reborn, because it's the selfishness is reborn. It's the mm. selfishness recurs and recurs and recurs. When we get selfish, when that happens, we automatically go into a woeful state. And That's very true. And there are four woeful states that the Buddha talks about. Guess where he got them? He borrowed this from the Brahmins, like he borrowed almost everything. <laughs> you think of Buddhism as nothing but a Brahmin contraption with a heart. <laughs> with, a, with a heart. With a heart. That's the important bit. <laughs> and that's what gives it momentum or transportation. So these four woeful states are a state that the self winds up in. Mm -hmm. There is the hell state. And what is hell is nothing but I want out of here. I got to get out of here. Let me out, let me out, let me out. Desperate. So it's, it's desperation, it's anxiety, it's anger, it's hot. Mm. Another woeful state that we can be born into is being in a state of need. I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. This is the state of the what is called the hungry ghost or the preta. A little bit greedy? Yes, greed. When we right. feel like we don't have all that we need, when we feel that we were incomplete, boy, I would be so much better off if I had that. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the, the typical thought of every high school boy as he's walking down the high, high school corridors when uh, the class, every girl he sees, boy, I'd be better off if I had her. Yeah, that's... Uh... And that's a woeful state to be in. It's a woeful state of I need something instead of being in the state of I'm just so happy. Everything is just fine. I don't Yeah. It does sound like a very Western thing. That mm -hmm. state of need. Very, very Western. Very materialistic. It goes way back. Wanting things we don't have. In fact, if you inspect the second... Uh, the, call, the second noble truth. Mm -hmm. There it is. <laughs> That's it. And it winds us in this woeful state of being a hungry ghost or being mm. hungry all the time. We're hungry, hungry, hungry because we never Wanting more, 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 more. Very an, hungry, yeah. In America, they call it an executive. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the third? 
the third one is the one that's the most common. Okay. And that is the, uh, um, the state of being an animal, the animal state. Now, so is that like in instinctive, acting instinctively? Not only that, but also um, being like a draft animal. Okay. Okay, it's like a draft animal in the sense that you do not get rewarded for your labors, but you do it anyway because uh, not doing it is going to be even worse. Right, and right. Train our children that way. Do your ABCs. Go clean your room. And the kids don't want to do it, but they do it anyway. And we wind up in our whole lives taking on jobs we don't want to do, but we do it anyway. Homework. The kids go to church. They don't want to go to church, but they do it anyway. That's a Your very, that's a very good car, point. Want to go down to this part of town, and you know it's dangerous down there, and you don't want to go, but you go anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's very common. And then people at work are like, "Oh, hey, could you do this, please? I'm swamped." And you don't say no; you say yes, even though you don't want to. Now your workload's piling up, and mm -hmm. yeah, very common, very common. Yes, it's very common. This is the most common state of all is being a, an animal, and we'll talk about it more, but this is one of the four. The last one mm -hmm. is kind of humorous almost until you see how devastating it is. This is the assurance, which many people um, mistake as a heavenly world, but in fact it's a hell world. This is also the world of the Titans in Greek mythology. Okay. Okay, you know who the Titans are. They're the warriors. Yeah. They're the ones yeah. who defend heaven. They're the ones who are all dressed up for battle and don't want to go. They're all dressed up for battle, but they don't want to go because they're afraid. Possibly the, uh, the the one example of that that I just think is so marvelous is the example of McClellan, who was the general who trained the Union forces for the Civil War under President uh, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Lincoln, sorry, Lincoln. Under, under Lincoln, he uh, got a, a huge war machine going. Mm -hmm. And when, and when uh, Lincoln says... Okay, go to war. He said, well, wait a minute, we need this. And wait a minute, we need, we need that. We need we that. Need to, we need, we need we to train need our men. We need to... We need more training. We need this, that, and the other thing. And finally, Lincoln says enough of this, and he fired McClellan and put Grant in. And they took that magnificent war machine up mm. north, put it into the Ohio River, sailed it down to the Mississippi, landed in Vicksburg, and cut across the south from Vicksburg all the way to Savannah, just destroyed, just took that one machine and just cut the south in half. Mm. But they wouldn't have done that with McClellan. He wouldn't have ever taken them to war. He was too hesitant. He was too hesitant. Now, here's the same story. You have the fourth graders <clears throat> doing a skit at the mm -hmm. end of the season. And the little boy walks out on stage dressed as a tree, and all he's got is one line, and he forgets it. Oh. Stage fright. That's a clear mm. example of being an Asura. All dressed up, no place to go. Mm. Prepared. People walk into test often doing this. So instead of getting a night's sleep, 
and be ready for the test because they they know they're well prepared. They're scared. They're up worrying. And they're up and they're all up all night studying, and then they fall asleep while they're doing the test the next day. Terrible, terrible. Okay, so this is these are the four woeful states. One is when we're afraid to act, even though we're well prepared. Mm, mm. The other one is is that we go along to get along. We do what we're told to do. Even if we don't want to do it. Even if we don't, especially if we don't want to do it. Then yeah. we're, if we wanted to do it, then what's the problem? Now we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. No, it's when we don't want to do it, but we do it anyway. That's when we're in that woeful state of being an animal, of not getting the reward that we were promised. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is the hungry ghost. And then the first one was hell itself. Hell itself. Yeah. <laughs> The worst of it, and that's when we get really hot. That's anger. Okay, mm. all four of these are a kind of a prison because we don't we don't like it. But many people uh, will live in these these jails, live in these prisons, live in these woeful states from moment to moment to moment, not recognizing each moment they're doing something that puts them right back into these selfish states. Mm. They don't realize what they're doing. They put themselves back into it. They repeat it again and again and again throughout their lives. And that becomes the same car they live with. Mm. And they think it's me. They identify with it too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas they need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At all, is but they, <laughs> Yeah. But they need to separate from it and realize. Is just like the waking up. <laughs> you know, you wake up to it, and then you're able to, as you say, plot your escape, plot your route out. Right. Once you see the danger in going to these unwholesome states, then you can plot mm. your way out of it. Mm. So here's another example of the selfishness that we can see. And that mm-hmm. is that a, a dear friend or brother or someone that you know comes to you uh, with a financial problem and they need to borrow five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. If you tell them yes, then both of you will be happy that you've got the money, you feel wealthy and generous, and you give it, and he's got it and he needs it, and he really is grateful and her, and your bond is even better. Mm-hmm. In that moment, whether or not he pays you back is for the future. Let's not deal with that, okay? The other possibility is for you to uh, have some kind of thoughts and then tell him no. He's disappointed and you feel broke. Yeah. I can't give you $500. I don't have $500 and everybody feels bad. That's selfishness for you. Everybody's selfish right now. He needs the money. He wants the money. And where's your friendship? <laughs> mm, you won't give any, so you're being selfish as well. You're being selfish because you don't give him the money. He's being selfish because he can't get anything. Neither one of you are very happy with each other. And that's a huge hindrance, that kind of selfishness. Hindering what? Hindering the joy of the present moment. Mm. Even if you didn't have the money, you can say, hey, man, I'll do everything I can to help you. What can we do? I've Mm. got this much. Maybe Susie will give us some. And then you can start plotting your escape out of your own selfishness. Start plotting your escape. (laughs) <laughs> exactly it's crazy how it all ties together <laughs> it, does. it all fits back together 
So mm. let's go ahead and finish this conversation, and next time we'll start talking about uh, how these five aggregates get put into gear so that mm. we wind up in these hell states, these wolf yeah. states. That sounds like a very interesting conversation to come. I look forward to it. Okay, Ben. Well, we'll see you next time. Yes, yes. Chat to you soon. Thank you very much for today. Lovely to talk to you as always. And uh, yeah, I will speak to you again very soon. Keep your practice up. Keep them doggies rolling. Keep those. Oh, yes. Don't you worry. I will. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.